You still have the, the candy haze wearing off. We're in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 11 today. And uh, we're going to dig in. I, I want today to open up our eyes. I, I want some movement. I want us to, whatever you came from, whatever you're going to afterwards, let's just say, let's make an agreement that right now we're going to be open. That God wants to stir in us. God wants to make some movement. We didn't come here today just to sit through some dude talking for a little bit and then leave and be totally unaffected. So we want to open ourselves up. And what I want us to think about today is this idea of coming together. If we really are, truly are better together, then we actually need to come together. This is the idea, the concept of what we are doing even with dinner next week. We don't want to just talk about this. We want to be about this. We want to put this into practice. The problem is that we have separation. The problem is that we have divisions and we have factions. There are some of you in this room who don't even get along with each other. Some of you are sitting next to the person that you don't get along with. You look at our world and what's going on. We have wars and rumors of wars. And it's all about this, we can't get along. We can't be reconciled. And, and it, it's tearing us apart. There are walls going up. You even look at what's going on in our election cycle. And we're talking about building more walls. Now, I want to give us a picture of what Jesus has envisioned for us as a church. And this is far different than what we see taking place in the world. Now, you hear a lot of talk about... As much as we have wars, we have talks about peace. And uh, I saw this article. This is from 1986. It appeared in the Orange County Register. And it was about a peace march that was going against the Global Nuclear Disarmament Agreement. And this was 1986, a peace march that largely self-destructed through bickering. Just fighting, squabbling at each other. It began in Los Angeles and it stalled in Barstow, about 120 miles away outside of L.A., where about half of the 1,200 marchers went home. Soon, those remaining polarized over those who were the real walkers and those who rode in vehicles. They fought over dress code. What are we going to wear as the marchers of this peace rally? They decided to hold an election, but they disagreed over who could vote finally allowing even children to vote. And after they took the vote, they declared the election was invalid. Many ended the peace march not even speaking to one another. That is the world that we live in, and things just start to fall apart every once in a while. We need to make a movement, and we're going to talk about this in two different stages. The first one is separation, and we want to move from separation to reconciliation. From separation to reconciliation, and this is the very thing that Paul, as he's writing to this church in Ephesus, in Turkey, he's saying, look, there is something that we need to talk about. There is something that's taking place in your church, and I want you to hear that even though the words are 2,000 years old, that they have everything to do with what we need to be looking at in our lives and in our church and in our culture and in our society today. So there's an outline in your bulletin. Uh, hopefully at some point I'll be checking in with that and you'll see where I'm going for most of it, but we'll, no promises, okay? Uh, here it is. This idea of separation. I want you to understand, I want you to hear that there has always been a separation. There has been a struggle between those who are called the insiders and those who are the outsiders. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you, this is Paul, a Jewish guy, writing to Ephesus, which is largely Gentiles. He says, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's this struggle between the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders were the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and how they were separate and distinct and apart from the Gentiles, being everybody else who is not Jewish. Now, there was not just a struggle between them, but there was actual animosity. Here are some things. Uh, Barclay writes, writes this. He says that Gentiles, this is Jewish thought, that rabbinical thoughts, they said that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. It was said throughout history, rabbinical writings that would talk about Jewish women would not help a Gentile woman give birth because it would just add another pagan into the world. The thought was that if you were a Jewish person walking from a Gentile territory and you set foot into the Holy Land, that you would shake the dust off of your feet so you would not bring the taint of the pagans into the Holy Land. That's some animosity. The word struggled maybe does not quite convey it. But it's not just the Jews towards the Gentiles. The Gentiles also throughout history have had trouble with the Jews. Through wars, through saying, this is the way you have to worship. You have to forsake your God and forsake your worship, forsake the temple, forsake the Torah. And you need to follow in our way. We're going to Hellenize you. We're going to do whatever it is and we're going to strip that. And there's been attempts throughout history to destroy and to annihilate the Jewish people. There is an animosity that was there back then, and you can look today, and it still exists. So what do we do with this? This separation is spiritual, and I want you to see this separation because in verse number 12, it gives us five different ways. As Paul is talking to the Gentiles, he's saying that you were separated, but you were without. The outsiders were without five different things. Number one, they were without Christ. They were without Jesus. Now, you look and you go to Ephesus, and we've been there, we're going there next year, and they're worshiping not the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but their gods, and there's many Roman gods, but primarily in Ephesus it was Diana. A huge and beautiful temple was constructed for her and to be able to worship her there. But not only were they without Christ, but they were without citizenship. The words aliens and strangers is actually brought up even later in the end of this chapter. So the Gentiles, they were far off. They were out there. They were the uncircumcised. The outsiders were also without covenants. And perhaps the greatest covenant that God made came from Genesis chapter 12. And I put all kinds of references in your outline. But in Genesis 12, God chooses for himself people. In Amos chapter 3, he says, You only have I chosen among all of the families of the earth. 
And so God chooses the Jewish people, but he does this for a reason. Not because there's anything special about them, but he says that I want you, through you, through these ceremonial practices, through these laws, through circumcision, through your dietary customs, through your worship in the temple, as you do this, that you will be glorifying me. When other people, when all of the other nations see what I am doing through you, I will receive glory. But instead of Israel, as my dad calls it, being a conduit to have God's love and mercy and his light shining through the world, Israel thought of themselves more as a bucket. They wanted all of the divine blessings that God gave them, but they neglected their divine mission. And because of that, they've been sidelined. Now, God is not done with Israel. You can look at Romans 9 through 11, and God still has a plan for his people, but God is using the church today. God is using the Gentiles to bring the Jewish people today to bring a holy jealousy that we are now that conduit, that we are called to be a light and a blessing to the world and to reach out. And we want to bring in the Jewish people, but it's not just the Jewish people, it's all of the nations and the families on earth. But, but Paul's saying that you were without the covenants. And they were also without hope. There's a lot of writers that talk about these, this early first century. There was a cloud of hopelessness that was surrounding the ancient world. Um, there's a writer from first century. His name was Tacitus. And he writes how suicide was such a huge thing in that first century. In fact, one man is recorded as killing himself out of indignation for even being born. They were without hope. And finally, they were without God. It wasn't that they didn't have gods. They had many gods. You can look at Acts 17. And Paul is going through. It's his sermon from Mars Hill. He says, yeah, you have tons of gods. Even a god to the unknown god, just in case you missed one. But let me tell you about the one, the true God. So this idea, this concept, when we're talking about the insiders and the outsiders, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, what Paul has in mind... He's talking about this animosity, this struggle between the Jews and between the Gentiles. But there's far-reaching implications for us today. And, and here's the question I want us just to sit with for a second. Who are the insiders and the outsiders of the church globally today? But then even within us here at Calvary Church, who are the insiders and the outsiders? And which is it that you feel like? There are some of you here who you feel like you are on the inside, you are connected and you know people and you are friends with people. And when we say Calvary's going to dinner, you're all, awesome, I can't even wait. I'm going to hang out with all kinds of people. You're a connector, you're social, and it's great. And there's some of you who feel like you come in late, you leave early, you don't want to connect because you do feel on the outside. I just want to address for a second and let you know that that is not our heart. If, the, you, if you are somebody who feels like you are on the outside, whether that's because of how you look, your race, because of your identity, because of whatever that might be, that we want to be as a church in the business of bringing those who are on the outside back on the in. But even here, we struggle with that. Today, my prayer, and what I've been praying for all week is, and Lord... Bring us together in a way that would be a light to those who are around us. So we want to move from separation that exists for us today 
to reconciliation. And reconciliation is a big word. And there's a lot that goes on with it. But when we talk about reconciliation, I want us to know that Jesus came. He came to tear down walls that have been built up. There are walls. And you might have rows and chairs in between you, but there are walls between some of you. Some of you are intentionally sitting on this side because you know that the person that you don't want to run into is sitting on this side. Some of that exists within families. Some of those exist within friendship groups. And this is not what we are called to be as a church. Now look with me. Verse 13. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles who were formerly far off, it was through the blood of Jesus that you have been brought near. In fact, rabbinical writings would say that that's what you called. That's what you called the uncircumcised. That's what you called the Gentiles. Those are the ones who are far off. But now the outsiders through Jesus have been brought inside. Been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the strife, the struggle, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is important. The wall that existed then is still a wall that exists today. And he's talking about this wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. But he says that he wants to make the two into one new man. And he wants to tear down this barrier of dividing divisiveness and this dividing wall. Now, to that culture, to those people, there was a picture that came to mind. This is the temple structure. I kind of put two different pictures but you can kind of see that there's different courts. There, there's different things that are, are divided up. You have the temple and the Holy of Holies. But within this temple structure, there are different places. Depending on who you were, you could go to certain places. It was access points. There's a court for the women. There was a court for the Israelites, for the Jews. And they were the ones who were brought near. If the temple, and especially the Holy of Holies, represented the place where the Spirit of God was at, then you have the Jews, God's chosen people, were closer. But where are the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles have a court as well. And it's, it's maybe a little bit hard to see, but going around the perimeter, it's, it's, there's this little wall. It's, it's called the Sorek Wall, and it's about five feet tall, so I can barely see over it. Maybe with a ladder. Now, it was pretty obvious, depending on who you were, where you were supposed to be when you came to worship. Can you imagine today, if you come into Calvary Church and we say, well, the court of the Jews is right here, and then we put up a five-foot wall, and then the Gentiles, it'd be like me and my family right here in the front row, and that's it. (laughs) All right? But Jesus says, I want to take these two groups, I want to tear down this wall. One of the cool things when we were in Turkey this last year, this was actually found in the 19th century. On this Soric wall, there were seven 
inscriptions. There were these placards, and Josephus writes about it. He's a first century historian. And they found two of these. Some of them were written in Latin, some of them were Greek. But there was this stone. I actually, with Eric, we were in the museum in Istanbul, and we read this and we, we saw this, and this is the translation. I want you to picture, you are a Gentile, you come up, and there is a, a five-foot five foot wall, and right there, you see this stone. This inscription is on this wall, you know on the other side, because you can be on the outside looking in at the insiders, and you would see this inscription, and this is what it said on that stone. This is one of the actual stones. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade, And the plaza of the temple zone, whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. Is that division? That's huge division. How are you feeling if you are a Gentile on the outside? You feel like an outsider. And then you have the people on the inside. (laughs) You stay over there. We need you to fuel the fires of hell. And so there's this wall that exists. Now, you could come with us. We have this trip. It's, it's going two days after Easter next year. We're going in March, March 29th. And we're going to take whoever wants to come. We have about 22, 25 people coming. And we want a few more people coming. And so I want to let you know we have a table in the lobby today. But what we just saw right there with that stone, you will see that stone. But not only that, I want to just give you a teaching. And Eric and I struggle a little bit because we went there and we learned all of this amazing stuff. And we think we got to be careful about how we do this. We want to save a lot of this for the trip, but we're going to give away a little bit of it today. I want to just show you a little bit of what we talk about. I want us to look into the Roman culture. And and, and maybe just to illustrate that, that we have this this idea, this understanding um, of of the divisions that took place. I I, I want you to hear this story real quick. Um, This is from Australia. There was this, this bus driver from Australia. His name was Bishop John. And he would gather... Uh, a group in the bus, and it would be full of the the whites and the aborigines. And the bus driver, Bishop John, is tired of all of the squabbling that's taking place in the bus. And he finally was so fed up that he pulled the bus over to the side of a country road, and he said to the white boys, what color are you? And they said, we are white. And he told them, no, you are green. And then he went over to the aborigines. And he said, what color are you? And they said, we are black. And he said, no, you are green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. And all of the aborigines answered that they were indeed green. The situation seemed like it was resolved until several miles down the road, he heard a boy in the back announce, all right, light green on this side and dark green on this side. You see how much we just tend to, we are prone to division. Now, this wall that is taking place has always been there in existence. And I want you just to see what is the backdrop of what's going on in society at this time. This Roman culture that is pervasive throughout the city of Ephesus. And to do that, I just want to show you the class structure. We have some of our own class structure. We have some of our own stuff going on. But this is the world that existed back then. Um, We have the patricians. This is at the top of the rung. 
This is the fewest amount of people, but they hold the most amount of wealth and the most amount of land. And so the patricians, they were wealthy landowners. They came from the prominent founding families of Rome. They were the ruling class. There were groups called senators or the consuls or the equestrians. They were military leaders. These are the people that had all of the power, all of the respect. And beneath them, we have the plebeians. Now, these people are still citizens of Rome, but they are poor. They could not hold public office. They were artists, they were shopkeepers, they were small farm owners. They lacked basic rights, they could not vote. And then the class gets a little bit larger, and now we have freemen. These were people who were former slaves. If you were a slave owner, you could free your slave, and now they would be freed. They were also midwives and craftsmen and traders. They were Roman citizens, but they could not hold office. They lacked basic rights. Again, they could not vote. And then finally at the bottom, they say between 15 and 25% of the people during that time were slaves. They were often mistreated. They were whipped and branded. They could be killed for no reason at all. Foreigners were caught and they were sold for money and sold into slavery. They worked in the houses of the patricians. They worked in the mines and they worked in the factories. But not only do we have these divisions within the society, but then you have all of the other divisions. You have, so it's not just Roman citizens and non-citizens, but you have male and female. If you were female, you were just above property. The males held all of the power. The oldest male in the family would hold all of the power. And sometimes the women would have some rights to step in as an extension of their husband. But no woman, unless she was way, way, way up there, a very small percent would have any power whatsoever. There were veterans and civilians that were slave and free. And one of the main problems in the early church was how do you get people into the church, get everybody in the same room and have slave owners and slaves come together and not have that separation that they did when they walked in the door. This is talked about through many of the epistles. And so this is the backdrop. This is the world. And these distinctions into these things steps Jesus Christ. And he is trying to tear these walls and these divisions down. Look, it's addressed in a couple of these places. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 20. It says, For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is your entrance point. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. To say that all of these distinctions that were so pervasive in their culture were irrelevant in the body of Christ was so subversive against the backdrop of this Roman culture that you just didn't know what to do with this. The only thing that would be more subversive than this was to say that Jesus and not Caesar was Lord. And this is the culture that Jesus steps into. This is the culture that Ephesus is in. And this is what Paul is writing into. But not just there in Galatians, but the people of Colossae are dealing with this. And so this is what it says. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Where modern progress has tried to make us into a neighborhood, God has given us the task of becoming a brotherhood. 
So this is the backdrop, and this is what's going on. Now, into this, you think about this culture, and you think about what's going on. You know that the early church, they consisted of house groups. It wasn't Calvary Church. There was not this gathering that was taking place 2,000 years ago. Um, there is a guy named Peter Oakes, and he's writing about the life and the culture of the people of this time. And he's talking specifically about the social makeup of Rome, and he's talking about this house church. You can read about house churches uh, like Romans 16 and Acts 2 where they're breaking bread and they're coming together. He says it might have about 30 people. There might be a craft worker who rents a fairly large workshop with accommodation for his wife and children, a small number of slaves, perhaps one dependent relative. There would be other householders who could afford to rent but with less space for their families, slaves, and dependents. And in the same house church, there would be a couple of slaves from other households, a few free or freed people, and even a couple of homeless people. The craft worker and other householders would have moderate surplus. Not a few others, especially the householders, would have reasonable resources to make ends meet. Others, including skilled and unskilled workers, widows and beggars, would be living at or below subsistence level, with various degrees of vulnerability. That is what church looked like 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine that you're walking around Roman society, you're walking around the town of Ephesus, and you open the door to your house church, and the people that you were serving, the people that you felt inferior or less than, you were the outsider, they were the insider, you now walk through the doors of this house church, and you're one. There is no more distinction. They say that the church around 100 AD had about 25,000 people. About 70 years after Jesus was on earth, the church, the believers of the time, there were about 25,000. Fast forward 200 years, about 300, 310, there were more than 20 million. How did the church flourish like that in 200 years because the church was offering something that could not be found anywhere else a place where you could leave your credentials behind you leave your power your prestige you leave your education you leave your wealth and your land ownership behind and you come in together and now you are one what would that look like if we were like that here today it's what it's supposed to be like but what, what's amazing to me is that they come together and they break bread. Now, this table here, maybe you've noticed it. Maybe you're like, well, what's going on? Better together, we're supposed to break bread and have this meal together. But I, I want you to just see that there's this passage in 1 Corinthians. And we talk about this passage, but there's this chunk in the middle that we normally fixate on. But I, I want you just to see... Go, go with me for one second. I'm going to go through this real fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to start in verse 17. Paul is going against Corinth. He is not happy with Corinth when he's writing. It's basically Vegas of the time. And the Corinthians are having trouble getting along. They're having trouble even with their divisiveness. And so to this, he writes this letter and he's just railing on them. And in verse 17, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And my prayer is that when God sees us here, that we come together for the better, not for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, when you get together, those 20 to 30 people, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The backdrop and what's going on here is there are those who have and there are those who don't. And so those who have, they're opening up their homes. They're actually probably providing a little bit more of the food. And then you have the slaves and they're coming in. Now those who have, they probably could get in there whenever they want to. It's their house and they, maybe they could cut off work at 3 p.m. and kind of get ready and set. But maybe somewhere around 6 or 7 p.m. Like the slaves, they finally get off of their work. They're finally allowed to go. And they walk in and instead of this huge potluck that was there, all of the wealthy people have eaten. Not only have they eaten, but they're laying around drunk. They've taken in. They've taken too much, and now there's nothing left for those who are coming in. And he's saying, I'm not going to praise you for that. You're coming around together to do this. Now, when we take communion, when we have this table where you guys are going to go around and we have these stations here, this table was, it's not just like this little tiny cracker and like a little pot of juice. It was a feast. In fact, Jude calls it a love feast. It was the agape feast. And you would come together and you would celebrate because out there... We are divided, but in here in the body of Christ, we are not. And so they come and they gather around the table, but he's saying, look, you're doing this. And this whole meal, this feast would take place and it would lead up to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, where they would actually remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And so it goes on in verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then, so he's giving this example. This is why Jesus came. But then he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, look, you can read five commentaries and probably get five different opinions, but I want you to know, after I've read through this and prayed about this, that I believe that he is addressing what's going on earlier in this passage. He's saying, when you guys are coming together, as believers, you're not considering one another. That you're actually putting up those walls and those divisions and those factions that Jesus Christ in his body, in his blood, came to tear down. And he says, I will not praise you in this. And so today when we take the cup, and today when we take the bread, it's good for us to examine our hearts and where we are at with God. But there's this piece that we have to examine and look at where we are at with one another. Who are the kinds of people that we have here today? Because we've listed out, we have some patricians and plebeians, but let's jump ahead a couple thousand years. Who is in this room today? Look around, because this is 
a list that I stole from our friend Mike Erie, and this is a great list. This is what, these are some of the people that we have here today. We have Republicans, and believe it or not, Republicans, there are some Democrats in here. They're sitting right next to you. You can sniff them out if you'd like to. There are single, married, divorced, and widowed. There are young, and there are old. There are families, biological families, adopted families, and stepfamilies. There are couples in this room that want to have children, and they can't. There are couples that have children, and they wish they didn't. There are couples who are around these families, and they determine to never have families themselves. There are introverts in this room, and there are extroverts. There are rich and they're poor. There are male and there are female. There are opposite-sex attracted and same-sex attracted in this room. There are people that prefer hymns and people that prefer drums. Most of them went to the first hour for the hymns, but... In this room, we have black people, Latinos, Asians, Persians, Caucasians, and three Jewish people. We have... (laughs) I can't help it, I'm sorry. We have educated and blue-collar. We have upper class, middle class, lower class, and no class. Homeowners and homeless people show up here on Sunday morning. We welcome you here. Inner city and suburbs, abusers and victims, thin and husky. (laughs) Those who are full of love and trust for Jesus this morning and those who are struggling and doubting. We have the morally upright and the morally suspect. Employed and unemployed, healthy, sick, and mentally ill. We have the abled and the differently abled. The broken and the self-sufficient. The ones who have walked with Jesus for five minutes and the ones who have walked with Jesus for 50 years. We can go on and on. And this is both the beauty and the curse of being the body. But we are called to come together. These are the people that we have here today. One of the things that we're trying to push here with this whole dinner thing is that we don't want to just talk about this. We want to practice this together. We don't want just you with all of your buddies and all of your friends to get together for another same race, same group of people. But we want to mix it up. We'd like a little diversity around here. We welcome that. That is the body of Christ. That is what we are called to be. So if you've been hedging and you're like, I don't know about this, I'm going to just encourage you to get a little bit uncomfortable. We need to lean into this a little bit more. (laughs) Should I? I I have a child who was in karate and the the teacher, the sensei was was trying to stretch his arm and he says, I want you to tell me, I'm just going to pull your arm and kind of turn it a little bit just to stretch and you tell me when it starts to feel uncomfortable. And he said, now! He says, I'm not even touching you yet. (laughs) That's how some of us are when it comes to stuff like this. We want to break down the walls that we have with one another. Jesus came for that very reason. Um, real quick, I know I'm going a little bit late, but I just want you to hear two things. Robert Louis Stevenson, he writes this story about two unmarried sisters. They shared a single room. Two unmarried sisters, they share a single room. And as people are apt to do when they live in close quarters, the sisters had a falling out. 
And Stevenson says, on some point of controversial divinity. In other words, they agreed over, they disagreed over some aspect of theology. We never do that here, do we? Now, the controversy was so bitter that they never spoke to one another again, ever. There were no words, either kind or spiteful, just silence. Can you imagine that? Nevertheless, possibly because of lack of means or because of the innate Scottish fear of scandal, they continued to keep house together in the single room. A chalk line was drawn across the floor to separate their two baths, their two domains, and for years they existed in hateful silence. Each woman's meals, their family visitors, they were exposed to the other's unfriendly silence. At night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus, the two sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives like that. This is not how it's supposed to be. One of the things that challenged me, I just turned 39. I said, in my 40th year, one thing I'm going to be doing over the next year, I made a reconciliation list. I wrote down people who I knew were upset with me, people who I was upset with and didn't matter who the fault was, but right now there are eight people on that list. It might be one of you. Um, But I am going to make my way through that list over the next year. I've already started and I did two. It was not... Oh. Okay. Thanks, I guess. Thanks. Um, I don't know what to do with that. Um, But I've talked to two of those people, and I have reconciliation. Was it awkward? Yes. Was it uncomfortable? Absolutely. Did I not want to do it? Yes, I wanted to cancel. But I called, and I said, let's do this. And they were shocked, and I was shocked. And I said, I can't believe it. And we worked through it. And my goal is to work through the next. And my prayer is, God, if there's more, then then bring them to me. Don't come up to me afterward and say, am I on that list? Because I think I need to be. (laughs) Real quickly, Jesus Christ came to tear down this wall that we have with others. But I also want you to know that he came to tear down the wall between sinners and God. So one is horizontal, the other one is vertical. And this is is how the passage finishes out. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16 He's establishing peace and might reconcile them both. Take both groups that are now one. Take them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity, the struggle. There was a struggle between us and God. And he came and he preached peace. This is from Isaiah 57. He came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near And then we have a great Trinitarian verse where we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For through Him, we have both access in one Spirit to the Father. We have access. This word access was used, it's actually three times in the New Testament, of somebody who worked in the courts, and they would be the person who would bring you to the king so that you had access, that you wouldn't get killed when you came to talk to the king. Our only way for peace is through Jesus. In this passage, it says that he himself is our peace, that he established or he made peace, and that he also preached peace. Jesus came to break down the walls that we have with God. When we come to this table, we don't come with our credentials, we don't come with our jobs and our wealth. The only people that come to this table is sinners. And we remember the peace that he offered through his body and through his blood. So we're going to take a couple minutes because we like to do this. We're going to embrace this. We're going to discuss together. And this is what I want you to discuss for the next couple minutes. 
Where is reconciliation needed for you? Either with man or with God. There's only a couple minutes, so this is not going to be the world's deepest conversation. But this is a practice that is hopefully designed for us to be starting our memory. Where is reconciliation needed? Not just for you, but also where do you think we need reconciliation here at this church? So this is what I want you to do. You're sitting. Everybody, one, two, three. We're going to stand up. And we're going to find people. And even if you can do this, find people who are different from you. And go for the next couple minutes and just answer this question. Don't leave. Talk. Okay. I know it's not fair to cut you off at this point, but this is the beginning of a conversation. I don't want you to go back to your seats. Will you just all stay standing and turn and face me right where you're at? Don't go back to your seats. Don't sit down just yet. Hold on. Here's the deal. You just talked for a couple minutes with either friends or strangers, but I want us to do something here. Remember that uncomfortable piece? We're going to get even more uncomfortable. (laughs) Here's what I want. Now look, we're going to take communion together. We're going to do it together. And and this is what we envision it to look like. Um, to, To remember that communion is 
to remember what Jesus did in his body and in his blood as we take the bread, as we take the cup. And even though it's a really small, small piece, I wish we could like, like, but that's next week, right? That's what we're going to do next week. We're going to enjoy and feast together. But that we would go, and most of the time when we do this as a response, we have some music going, and you go up either by yourself or maybe with your spouse or the person that you like. And what we're going to do is instead of this being an individual thing is with this discussion group, (laughs) we're going to go together. Now, don't all go up at once because then it turns into children's ministries and there's long lines and we look like cattle. But to remember that this is something that happened in the early church. So some of you, you might not have that relationship with God. And at this point, if this is something that you want to sit back for and say, this is not my time, then that's okay. For whatever reason, that's okay. But the challenge, like 2.0 for us is that you would go with your discussion group. And Vic and the team are just going to play a little music in the background for a couple minutes. That you would go up to one of our tables. We'll do offering a little bit later. But you would go with this group. And together, you would take the bread and you would take the cup. And you don't have to be a pastor to do this. You don't have to do anything special to do this. This is the passage that you can look up. Somebody just take responsibility and you say, grab the bread and go off into a corner, just spread out, get, be together with your group. And somebody, you, you hold the bread together and you read. Is it going up? Can we quit the, the slide up? Um, oh, there it is. It's on the, sorry. What's he doing? I don't know what I'm doing. We have the bread. And somebody just read this passage and, and take the bread together. Maybe somebody else would lead in the cup, and you do that together. And so we challenge ourselves, and we do this, but we remember what this was originally meant for. You leave your divisions at your seats, at the doors, and don't ever bring them back. Let me pray. We'll have some music, and we will respond in worship through music as well. We'll have some offering, and we will call it a day, but that this will be something that lingers with us a little bit. We'll go from here and just give it some space and then do this together. Let me pray. God, over this body of believers and even unbelievers, over our brokenness and in our turmoil, God, we give you this time. And, and we push through and we lean into maybe the discomfort that this might provide for some of us. I know for myself that some of the most painful parts of my life are relationships that never had reconciliation. And some of the most blessed and amazing times in my life have been to see reconciliation happen. May this, as we take your body and your blood, symbolically we remember what you came to do, that you came to destroy these walls between us. Lord, that we would be vibrant, that we would see growth because this community, the Calvary Church in this community, there is something different, that we welcome you no matter where you're coming from, no matter who you are. So God, would you do the work? It's by the power of your spirit that these walls are broken, but it starts as well in our hearts. And so as we do this, Lord, may there be something meaningful. And if we've been thinking, I don't want to go to dinner next week and do this, push us into that uncomfortability, that that zone where we feel like we can't do it. And surprise us by your goodness. God, thank you for tearing down the wall between us as sinners and you that we can even come to this table and have that freedom and have that access. We are grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.